Greetings and welcome to The Witnesses of the King. This is an exposition of the book of Acts. And today what we're going to learn about is that there is no other name under heaven by which to be saved. We'll be in Acts chapter 4 and we meet the action with Peter and John just having healed a man at the temple. And this man who had been lame since birth was healed and was rejoicing and, and leaping and praising God. And Peter and John went into the temple and Peter took the occasion to begin to preach. And of course, this brought some attention because there were some uh, nearly 2,000 people, about 2,000 people converted at that time. And so there was a, a gr an enormous crowd, great response to Peter's teaching. And of course, this drew the attention of the leadership who thought they better arrest Peter and John and check this thing out. So this is where we join the action in Acts chapter 4. So join me in your copy of the Word of God in Acts chapter 4. If you do not have a copy of the Word of God, you will find a link to notes, uh, or you can find the notes on our blog page at whitesrun.org. And those are hyperlinked to the scriptures, and so they will open up a, a Bible for you to use online where you can check out all the scripture references that we use here. So for now, join me in Acts chapter 4. Here's what it says. It says, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man had been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among, among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. 
because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you so much for this scripture. We thank you for this account. We thank you for your kindness to heal this man and your power to enable Peter to stand up before those who crucified Jesus and proclaim the truth. This day, Lord, may we understand the nature of what you are doing, and may we join you in it by faith in Jesus Christ. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there you have a profound uh, and beautiful truth of what Peter proclaimed there, and I want to draw particular attention to chapter 4, verse 12, and that's going to kind of be our focus this time. It says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so Peter here talks about the exclusivity of the gospel, that there's no other way uh, to be saved other than Jesus Christ. Now, first, I want to set the scene here, and I want us to understand clearly uh, what we're dealing with. Who is this that Peter is speaking to, and what does that mean to us? How is that important to us? Uh, first of all, in verses 5 and 6, we see that it was first the Sadducees, and they basically controlled the council together with the Pharisees. Uh, the council was made up of both, but the Sadducees seemed to have the upper hand in ruling the Jews. And they did not believe in the resurrection. A matter of fact, they didn't they didn't really recognize any scripture other than the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses as they're known. And so the Sadducees kind of start this because they hear them teaching about Jesus and him being resurrected. And they're like, okay, that's unacceptable. And so they go in there with the temple guard. They arrest these two. But then other rulers and elders show up at the council the next day, including the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas, who were both mentioned uh, in the Gospels having tried Jesus. And this is interesting because this is a family affair. The uh, the priesthood now was given over to what's called nepotism. That's when you prefer your family for political appointments. And these uh, th this family, the family of Annas uh, and Caiaphas, they were controlling the high priests at this time. So the very same men that had Jesus crucified, that developed the plot and everything to do so, that, that paid Judas to betray him, uh, these people are in the room, and Peter and John have this opportunity to speak to them. Now the question before them is this. The question is, by what power or by what name did you do this? In other words, they want to know, who, who do you think you are? <laughs> and who do you suppose sent you that you can just come here and do these things? And so the question is referring to, of course, the miraculous healing. And Warren Wearsby in his commentary on this points out that they don't even bother to say healing or miracle or anything. They just say this, you know, everybody knows what we're here to talk about because actually mentioning the thing might make it more real. So they simply call it this as if saying would make it more real. It had happened. It was undeniable. And it's the very reason they met. So they obviously knew what the answer was going to be. I truly believe that because they had overheard this teaching uh, in there. 
And so there would have been temple guard in the area. They, they could have heard it. They could have testified to these men ahead of time, what these men were saying, what the nature of the preaching was. And so that's the question they ask by, by what power or by what name that means, what authority did you do this? And the answer is very simple. Uh, Peter says, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Now he says a lot more about Jesus, which should be the nature of preaching. This is what we saw in Acts chapter 2, that his preaching was always Christocentric. That is, Christ was at the center of it. And so he's asked a simple question. He's not going to give a simple answer. He has to give the best answer, and the best answer is going to contain more information about Jesus. So what does he go on to say? Well, he goes on to say, first of all, you crucified him. So he says right to the council, pointing a finger in their face, so to speak, you crucified him. But in contrast, look at the contrast set up here. God raised him from the dead. And further contrast, he says, he was rejected by you, but to God, he's the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone of an ancient building was a very large stone that would be actually the bottom, usually front corner of the building. And what they would do is they would take care to find one good stone, a large stone. They would take this stone and they would cut it perfectly square so that it would be not necessarily a cube, but a perfect rectangle with corresponding 90 degree angles. The reason is it was this rock, this cornerstone that the rest of the building would be lined up with. So this was so important. This became the standard for aligning the entire building. And this is what is used of Jesus in what Peter says here. But Peter is not just speaking on his own, of course. He's filled with the Spirit. He is quoting from Psalm 118, verse 22. And Psalm 118 is the song from which the people sang when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. It is a psalm which says, This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it, which most people, when they read the psalm, they take that verse to be a generalized verse about every day. And indeed, it is true that every day is a day that God has made. But that psalm is speaking of a particular day, a particular age, that age of the Messiah, what's known as the day of the Lord. That is the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to the people of Israel. And so this is indeed a day that the Lord has made. And this is Jesus Christ is going to be the basis of this. He's going to be the center of this. He is going to be the entire topic, the entire subject of the day of the Lord. Both the idea of the pouring out of the blessings and the bringing of salvation, but also the idea of judgment coming upon the world. This is Jesus Christ. And so he was rejected by the leaders, but he is the cornerstone. And then as he proclaims in verse 12, he is the only way of salvation. This Jesus is so many things, and he is the center of what everything that we need to learn. And so in his answer, Peter gives this short <laughs> dissertation on who Jesus is and what the significance of Jesus is in this context. So there's a lot of lessons we can learn from this, and I want to spend 
most of the rest of this focusing in on this idea of the exclusivity of Jesus as it's described in verse 12, but there's some other very clear lessons. And if you like, you could make a sermon series on this sermon and or on this passage and have each of these with a particular uh, topic. First of all, filled with the Spirit, God's people can face any foe. And this is what Jesus said, is that the Spirit would give you utterance, what to say in the presence of people, and that this Spirit would bring you into all truth. Being filled with the Spirit happens to those who are already saved and have already been baptized by the Holy Spirit. This is not to be confused with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Spirit is often mentioned in conjunction with proclaiming the Word of God. And it's always mentioned in reference to those who already believe. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes upon people when they believe. And Jesus made this clear that there's only one baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's received by every true believer in Jesus Christ. To help you with this, let me take you to the book of Matthew. And we want to take a look in Matthew chapter 3, when John the Baptist is preaching. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, listen to what John the Baptist says. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. So he's speaking of Jesus, of course whose sandals I am not worthy to carry, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And so this is where we get the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is going to come from Jesus, and this is going to come upon those who believe. How do I know it's going to come upon those who believe? Well, John here sorts out for us all people into one of two groups. Those who are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit, or those who are going to be baptized with fire. Now, some will say, well, this fire refers to Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit came upon the people, something that looked like fire uh, divided and came upon each individual. That is not what John's talking about. Let me prove it to you. Context always helps us. If we look here and we back up just a single verse to verse 10, John is pronouncing judgment upon the people and upon the leadership. When he's talking about the trees and the axe laying before it, he's talking condemnation on the leadership of Israel. And he says, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So John is using fire imagery in accord with judgment. And this is commonplace in the Bible. It is very common that the Bible speaks of fire in terms of judgment. It's hell that is a fiery place. It is the lake of fire, which is the final resting place for Satan and for hell and death. All those things end up in the unquenchable fire of the lake of fire. And so John is speaking in terms of judgment. And so Jesus is going to come along. He's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. In other words, some will receive the Holy Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. The others will receive fire. Now, as many other references I've given you on the notes to help you with this, this is also covered in Luke chapter 3. And what I want you to see is that Every believer receives the Holy Spirit when they hear the word of God and believe. Look how Paul says it in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
And this is an important one because Paul was writing to a profoundly dysfunctional church. When you read 1 Corinthians, you get the idea this church is as messed up as my church. And so you read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and here's what he says. He says, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Paul assumed that the Spirit came upon every believer. In the book of Ephesians, he said it's the Spirit who's our guarantee when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So when were you sealed with the Spirit? When did you receive the Spirit? It's when you heard and believed. It is not some time later, it's some fantastical subsequent kind of thing. But nevertheless, there is this filling of the Spirit that occurs in believers and usually is connected to their proclamation of the gospel. And if you have ever preached the gospel, if you have ever shared the gospel with someone else, you may have experienced this filling of the Spirit in which it seemed like all of a sudden you knew the answers. All of a sudden you could retrieve the things that you had learned and bring them to bear on your conversation. And and it's an empowering that comes from the Holy Spirit. So there's other lessons here that we need to take a look at uh, in addition to this filling of the Spirit. Uh, one important lesson is this. Most people in positions of power and influence do not yield their power and influence to God. This is why Jesus spoke of the rich because they're very content in this world. He says it's going to be harder for them to come into the kingdom than it is for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Now, he didn't say it was impossible. And as a matter of fact, at the end of the Gospels, we're greatly encouraged to see Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, uh, rulers among the people, wealthy and influential people who followed Jesus, even cared for his body. And so, But most people in positions of power and influence do not yield it to God. This is why in our uh, societies that the elites tend to be godless. The elites tend to be self-sufficient. They, they are treated special and they begin to believe that they are special. And so it is a, not a proper place for a human being to be worshipped. And when they are, it has terrible consequences for them and for others. The true gospel must be preached to everyone, however, even though these were the leaders, even though these were the hard-hearted ones that betrayed Jesus to secure their position of leadership and make sure he didn't mess anything up for them. Uh, Peter preaches the gospel to them anyway. And if we preach the gospel, and if we're faithful to preach the gospel to everyone, many will believe. On the first day, the day of Pentecost, it says some 3,000 people came to believe. And on this day, it says their number grew to 5,000. Now, how many more were added from the 3,000 since then? We don't know. But that means up to 2,000 people believed at this time. And so this is a powerful response to the preaching of the Word of God. If we preach it, people will believe. And then I want you to see that even faced with obvious miracles, some people will still refuse to believe. We spoke about this last time, and people ask the question, why, why aren't there miracles now? What are we doing wrong that there aren't miracles? And, and I answered the question as, well, there's not supposed to be a lot of miracles now. That was something for the apostles 
to carry on the work of Jesus, to attest to their message. And now that that's recorded for us in the Word of God, the miracles are not necessary. And I tell you, even if they were here, they would not be so helpful. Because look at these men who cannot deny that they crucified Jesus, and yet this movement has lived on. It doesn't make any sense that these men are still proclaiming Jesus, knowing they could lose their lives for it. And more than that, this man was obviously lame. Everyone knew who he was. He laid outside the temple for years. And so here they are faced with a, a miracle they cannot deny. And they even admit that we can't deny what happened. But nevertheless, in their hard-heartedness, in their selfishness, they deny it and they say, nope, we can't let these guys go on. We've got to stop them preaching in this name. And so this is powerful and important for you to understand. Even faced with miracles, some people are not going to believe. That's why we preach the word of God. Let the Holy Spirit do its work. So I want to talk now about exclusivity. In this exclusivity, the real crux of the difficulty presented by Peter before these leaders is this exclusivity of Jesus. It's the fact that he proclaims that Jesus is the only way to God. And I want to remind you how emphatically this is stated. It's almost like Peter says it twice in the same sentence. He says, there is salvation in no one else. Okay, that should be sufficient. But he goes on to say, for there is no other name. So he's answering the question about what name have you done this in? He comes back, he says, there's no other name, as a matter of fact, under heaven. That means in the entire creation given among mankind or men by which we must be saved. So in other words, if one were to be saved, it is necessary that it be in this name of Jesus. There's not salvation found in anyone else. He emphatically states this. And I tell you the truth, it is absolutely true, but it is a difficult subject. And this is something we have to admit right up front. This is not an easy thing to talk to people about because what this is saying is that all these other religions and all these efforts of all these people through the centuries and the millions of people today that observe other faiths has all been in vain. And indeed, it has been in vain because only Jesus can save. Now, some will say, well, that's not fair. They didn't know they're, they're acting in ignorance. I understand that this idea can be offensive. This idea can be very difficult. And it's difficult to know that all those other religions, that those, those good people in those other religions and those other faiths are lost. But I humbly ask you to consider this. Is this world, as we look around at it and the condition of it and the things that go on, does this world appear to be mostly in sync with God or mostly out of sync with God? How about when we compare it to the Word of God, where God is concerned about our behavior toward one another and toward himself, and not just our behavior, but the inward part, our inward attitudes of the heart? How's the world doing? Is it mostly in sync with God or mostly out of sync with God?
Dr. R.C. Sproul uh, explains it like this. He says, if we are offended by a doctrine of the Bible, specifically this one he speaks of, he says, if we disagree with God or his word, the problem must be with us, not him. In other words, when we come to an exploration of God, when we come to find who God is, what we must do is if we truly seek the God of the universe, the one who spoke things into existence, the one who reigns over it all, the one who is the standard of morality, when we come to him, we must first look for the error in ourselves. This is kind of the very definition of God is that if he is the rule maker, if he is the creator, then we have to come to him ready to lay down our ideas and ready to lay down our own theories about God, our own presuppositions about him and let him do the informing. Now, the reason this is a difficult uh, subject is because of mankind's rebellion to God. This is difficult because we are in active rebellion. The Bible does not present a world that's simply ignorant of God. It presents a world in rebellion to him. And this is made clear like in passages like Romans chapter 1, where it says the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. That's a big statement because, in other words, what it's saying is that God is angry with what's going on is being revealed. And people look around the world and say, where is it being revealed? We are so in rebellion and so blind to it that we don't see the obvious thing like death. Death is pretty much the ultimate sign that something's not right here. We never get used to death. Death, death is an intruder in this world. And at some point, we all know it. We all know it. Because into our man-made religions, we weave ideas of an afterlife. We weave ideas of, of eternal life into all those things. Why? Because God wrote it on our hearts. And the creation bears witness to the fact that it ain't right. Death is not supposed to be here. And this should be obvious to us. But why is it not so obvious to us? Why have we not thought of this until the word of God brings it up? Because we're in active rebellion to God. We don't want him in charge of us. We think he will take away something from us, but we don't realize that without him, we actually have nothing. So this is a difficult subject. It's also difficult because of the popular illusion today of progress. Many people just throw out religion because it is ancient. Many people look for a new religion, one that goes more in tune with our enlightenment that we have these days. And people think that mankind has fundamentally progress somehow just because we can make cell phones and automobiles and nuclear power plants now and we couldn't 2,000 years ago. Well, to tell you the truth, we have not progressed. In fact, many could argue that we have regressed in many ways. People look around, they say, well, we, we embrace this and that now. We're out of an age of ignorance. We're in an age of science. We're enlightened. But I challenge you on this issue. I challenge you right now today, go and pick up a book that is two to three hundred years old and you will have difficulty reading it. Not because the language is slightly different now, 
but because the language was so much fuller then, you will find on every page a word you need to look up to define, not just because we use a different word now, but because we have dumbed down our language. I challenge you, go get yourself a book by John Owen or Jonathan Edwards or someone from hundreds of years ago and read their grasp of philosophy, their grasp of truth, their grasp of human nature, their observations of nature itself. It is so detailed and so profound and so deep that you'll struggle to read it. And if that's not good enough for you, go back over 2,000 years, grab yourself some Greek philosophers from the first few centuries BC and see if you can keep up with their train of thought. You'll read a page or two and you'll have to set it down to think about it. Now you will ultimately catch up because God has gifted us with the ability to learn. But I tell you the truth, we have only progressed in our ability to communicate and that by the grace of God, so that he could get his word to all people. So this is a difficult teaching because of our rebellion to God, because of our assumption that we're somehow progressing in our knowledge of things. And I want to point out this about exclusivity, however. Jesus clearly taught it. Jesus clearly taught that he was the only way. The most plain statement that we like to go to is this, is John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But that is not the only place he expresses this. He expresses as the very definition of eternal life, knowledge of him and the Father. He says, this is eternal life that they know you, he's speaking to the Father at this point, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. He taught exclusivity all along. In Matthew eleven twenty seven, he says something interesting. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Well, that shows us some very important things. It shows us, first of all, he is claiming that the only way to know the Father is through him. And he's also claiming that the only way to know is to be chosen to know. And so those are two very profound things. In other words, he is saying, this is completely in my hands. And so it's undeniable what he was teaching here. In John 3, 18, this is important because our one of our favorite verses is John 3, 16. And it should be because it's such a great verse. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But it goes on to say, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved. And we say, yay, that's great too. But look at what verse 18 says. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. So what Jesus is claiming exclusivity there because he's saying, look, the only way anyone is not condemned is through him through believing in his name. And that phrase, in his name, makes us very specific. It means you're not, you're not believing in a type of Christ or the concept of Christ or the spirit of Christ. You're believing in the person of Jesus Christ. 
And so these are very important passages. There's many more I gave you in your notes. You'll remember when he sat down with a woman uh, at a well in Samaria, he uh, told her, uh, I sp- who speak to you am he. In other words, I'm that Christ. And, you know, he made it very clear, no, salvation is of the Jews. He just outright denied her religion right to her face because she goes, well, look, Samaritans say we ought to, you know, we say we ought to worship here. This is what our fathers say here, but you Jews say it's in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no, salvation's from the Jews. (laughs) And he says, a time is coming when we will worship in spirit and in truth. It won't be about where you worship. It'll be about how, and it'll be in spirit and in truth. And then he comes along and he says, I'm that truth. So these are powerful things that Jesus taught exclusivity concerning himself. And he taught it over and over again. And the apostles continued it. They continued this teaching. Look at things like 1 John 5, 12 and what John says about it. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He lays it out very simply. Paul does too. 1 Timothy 2.5, he says, There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. Okay? So he says there's only one way, that's Christ. And look what he says in Galatians. Uh, as people came and started to confuse the gospel to the Galatians, he says these very strong words to them. He says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Now, notice what he calls a different gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it in chapter nine for, or in verse nine for emphasis. Paul says, anybody comes to you with any other thing, even if it's an angel, let him be accursed. And indeed, there is another major religion that claims that an angel came and gave another gospel. And so the apostles continued this teaching of exclusivity. Now, I want to show you why this is still relevant today. I want to talk about this a little bit. Uh, it is still relevant today because we live in a pluralistic society. The exclusiveness of Jesus Christ needs to be the message of the church. What is happening in our nation and indeed in all of the Western world today is indeed the judgment of God. It has come upon us for our sins. First, abortion, then various kinds of oppression and many kinds of corruption in our governing officials and even in, even in the common folk for widespread sexual immorality, the redefining of God's standards for family and marriage, a complete abandonment of the idea of marriage almost, a neglect of family. And although much of the unrest and judgment has come through this departure from traditional values, the real cause of all these things is sin, our rebellion to God, And so the real purpose of all the things coming upon us is indeed judgment from God to show us the error, to make it clear that, as it says in Romans, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Because a departure from traditional values in a nation that used to be (laughs) 
more Christian, which that can be debated too, but nevertheless, it was founded upon a biblical understanding of the universe. It's merely a symptom. A return to those values is not the cure. The cure for the problem of the world is repentance before the one true God and faith in his son, Jesus Christ, his only son. I want you to apply this to any social concern and think this way, Christian. As Christians, we can see that every social concern is a gospel-first problem. We must make every effort to put the gospel first. If we clothe someone but deny him the gospel, we merely send him comfortably into hell. If we feed someone but don't declare to him the gospel, we merely send him to hell with a full stomach. Eternal security is better than worldly comfort. We must preach the gospel first. And the exclusivity of Jesus Christ demands that we speak it loudly and clearly to all the world, that we not respect any particular boundary. When somebody says, oh, but I'm, I've already got some faith. I've already got this faith. I already live basically a Christian life, but don't really have to have Jesus. I can be a good person without religion. And it's like, yes, but you can't be born again without Jesus Christ. And you can't see the kingdom of God without being born again. And you cannot avoid the fires of hell, the punishment for your own sin without Jesus Christ, because it is only Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God in our place. That's the gospel. Why was he crucified? He gave himself up to take on the wrath of God, to pay the price for sins for all who will believe. And if you will just believe in him, then the wrath reserved for you is placed upon him and your sins, as Peter said, are blotted out. Your sins are gone as if they never occurred, not to be brought up again. Sins past, sins present, and sins future. And then God will begin to cleanse your heart. He'll take your heart of stone. He'll give you a heart of flesh. He'll cause you to be born again in Jesus Christ. So Jesus did claim exclusivity. He taught it. His apostles taught it. And we continue to teach it. And the pluralism of our world, of all the different religions and stuff, is an encouragement to us because it shows us two very important things. First of all, it shows us our desire for religion shows our need for God. It shows that we have this impulse that God has made us in such a way. He's made us for himself so that without him, we are restless. Without him, we are uneasy. Without him, we seek something to fill the void. So our desire for religion shows our need for God. And our desire for religion other than Jesus Christ shows that our problem is rebellion to God. It proves that there's rebellion. The fact that there is other religions proves, hey, we're in rebellion to God because we're looking for anything but him. And this is true of most of the world. Now, I want to cover a couple issues here. I want you to see that if we deny the exclusivity of Jesus Christ, we actually deny Jesus himself. 
Follow me here because I'm going to exercise our God-given logic. If you believe Jesus to be just one way, you've got a problem. If he's one way among many. Because when you look at his teaching, as we saw, he plainly teaches that he is the only way. So one of two things must be true about Jesus. Either he's wrong about this, and if he's wrong about the fact that he's the only way, he could be wrong about being one way, one of many ways. And so we couldn't trust him. The other thing is, uh, if he was lying, if he's a liar, is he qualified to be even one way to God? And so you can't have uh, Jesus and any other religion because what it does is it sets Jesus up as being either uninformed or a liar, either of which disqualifies him from helping you. And so if we deny the exclusivity of Jesus, we deny Jesus himself. All religions cannot lead to God when we look at this from the other way. If all religions can lead to God, then you're serving a God that is less than the God of truth. You're serving a God that, first of all, doesn't exist. <laughs> but if it did exist, it would, wouldn't be worthy of worship because this God, uh, because the religions have irreconcilable differences. I always laugh when I see people with the coexist bumper sticker on their vehicle. And I understand the sentiment and I appreciate the sentiment because indeed we all should try to get along in this world. It's commanded by God that we get along. But the fact is you've got one letter wants to destroy the other letter. One letter holds one thing that's absolutely counter to what another letter holds. And, and several of those letters say they're exclusive. And so the idea of putting them all together in a word coexist in this happy feeling, you know, this, this indicates the nature of the heart of the person who put the bumper sticker on their card, that their theology is about as shallow as a one word bumper sticker. For this hypothetical God that allows anyone to come to him any way they want to willy nilly, as long as they're sincere, a God that would allow those kind of contradictions to exist in his world is the very author of confusion. Now, the Bible states clearly God is not the author of confusion, but there is one who creates confusion, the evil one, Satan. See, this hypothetical God that lets people come to him however he wants, he's so casual about the approach to himself, he obviously doesn't care enough about himself or creation in order to make the singular truth about himself known. It's a God who approves jihad on the one hand, but not on the other. It's a God who permits indulgence of the flesh on one hand, but legalistic adherence to rules on the other. It's a God who allows child sacrifice, but a God who also forbids it. This God, this fictional God that allows people to come to himself however they please is satisfied with you being confused. He's either satisfied with your ignorance or he's not the least bit interested in fellowship with you. How can you fellowship with someone that you do not know, that you cannot know, and do you not seek to know that person more? If you had a friend that tried to hang around you as if you were someone else, 
How long could you maintain that friend? They keep asking you questions that were irrelevant. They will keep asking you, hey, tell me about the time you did this, and it's something completely fictional. You would have nothing in common because this person doesn't even know you and is not interested in objectively knowing you. This is also a God of no help because it doesn't light the way or show the way. It doesn't enable the journey. You're on your own. This God doesn't care how you approach. And this is a God that obviously isn't paying attention to those who are trying to approach. It just lets them grope in the dark. It's a God who ultimately is okay with everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. Now that sounds really familiar, doesn't it? Everyone doing what's right in his own eyes. That's a quote from the Bible. And this is what we find in godless societies. They make up the rules for themselves, and they make up the gods for themselves, and they make up the gods to suit themselves. Now we have to turn this on us and say, how have we done the same? What do I believe about God, and what does it reflect about my desires? What does it reflect about my rebellion? Do I, did I fashion a God to myself to protect my sins that I love so much? My God approves of those things which I like to do. Well, most of us build a God in our own image. But the Bible presents one of a self-existent, loving deity. The true God, the God of the Bible, the one that sent the way himself, Jesus Christ. Not just to show the way, but to be the way. He doesn't even just illuminate the path. He is the path. The true God draws people to himself, convicts them by his spirit, and takes their hearts of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, causing them to be born again. The true God is so great that there's no way for mankind to reach him. So what does he do? He lifts them up to himself. He pardons their rebellion. He fixes their hearts and their minds, and he plans fellowship with them forever, not just forgiving their sins, but ultimately in one day rolling back all the results of their sins, the sickness and the death, the division and the strife, the sadness and the tears. It'll all be gone. Joy and love and unity will reign in eternity with the true God, the God of heaven. God will be with mankind and mankind will be with God. These religious leaders in Acts chapter 4, they were settling for the status quo. They wanted to maintain their position, their rich life, their luxury, their fame, their influence. But it was all temporary. Do you remember Jesus looking at the temple and saying, I tell you the truth, not one stone will be left upon another? 37 years after these guys brought Peter and John before them, their temple was destroyed. Their entire way of life was gone. And it's gone to this day. And even though Israel was reformed as a nation in 1948, their way of the temple, their way of worship and all that, it still hasn't resumed. They are still cut off from God in this way. Now they can still believe, they can still repent and trust Jesus Christ for their salvation, as you can too. But those leaders in that day, they likely entered into an eternity that they ultimately chose, an eternity without God, eternally paying the price for their rebellion. The question is this, why would you go that way 
when the way has been shown to us? Why, especially when it's so clear that there can only be one true way to one true God? There is only one nature of reality, and its author calls you today. Do not delay to heed that call. And listen to what Peter said. Repent. Repent so that your sins may be blotted out. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for bringing us together. We thank you for your word and for its conviction. And we thank you, Lord, for making yourself known. For while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that is a truth, Lord, that I pray everyone hearing this today comes to know. Lord, I pray that you would just make yourself known by your spirit, that you would use the word to show the truth that you are concerned, that you lift up, that you cause people to be born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Lend faith to the hearer today to be convicted of their sins and to repent and to know Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I pray this day you'll use this message in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to thank you for joining us. And I imagine we may have spawned some questions in your mind today. And, and I, I pray that's true. I pray you're thinking about these things. And if you are, please contact us. You can contact us for the uh, information here at the end of our, our presentation here. And you can teach us or reach us at whitesrun.org. Maybe you can teach us a thing or two. And you can contact us at whitesrunbaptist at gmail.com. Please email us with your questions, concerns, or comments. We will reply personally. We will help you. We can help you find a church in your area. We can help you understand these things more clearly and show you in the scriptures where these things are true. Until then, continue to search for the scriptures to prove these things true or false.